Welcome to the Fearless Fostering Podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Burst, LCSW, a foster and adoptive and bio mama and a therapist in private practice. I'm here to help foster mamas feel seen, heard, and supported on their journey. From quick, actionable steps to make your foster care journey easier to interviews with foster and adoptive mamas, the Fearless Fostering Podcast delivers education and encouragement weekly. So let's get started. Welcome back to the Fearless Fostering Podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Burse, LCSW, and I am joined today by Amanda Carpenter. She is an author. She is a podcast host. She is an amazing entrepreneur and just um, awesome voice in the space of foster care and family. So Amanda, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Absolutely. So I would love for you just to let us know a little bit first, like what is your background with foster care experience space? Yeah, I've been a foster parent since 2017. My husband and I have had a lot of placements, but I really haven't tracked the number of placements. I've just really tracked the number of children. So the best way for me to explain it is we've had now 17 different kids Uh, Some of those were part of a sibling set, a sibling group that came to us, but since 2017, and we were fostering in Chicago for about four and a half years. And then we live in LA where we're fostering again. Um, And we have one biological son who will be two in a week. So yeah. Wow. So what made you decide like, oh yes, foster care? Because I feel like so many people, their journey to that yes is a little bit different. Yeah. You know, I think I, I don't know how many people listen to your podcast share the same faith as me. So totally cool if this sounds a little like cuckoo to some people, but I believe that God uses the catastrophes of our life to be the catalyst of our calling. And so the reason I am a foster parent to this day is because of what happened to me when I was seven. So on my seventh birthday, my parents were already divorced and I was with my dad and my stepmom that weekend. And we were supposed to have a birthday party and uh, they got into an argument about ice cream flavors. One thing led to another it escalated and it was world war three in the living room. The, it was a domestic violent situation and it got so out of control that I called the police. So seven years old, I don't really remember doing it, but I called 911 and my dad was taken away in handcuffs. My stepmom went to uh, the hospital in an ambulance and the social worker sat down on the front porch steps with me to talk to me, um, and t- to, basically figure out what to do with me and my baby half sister who was one years old at the time. And while I am so thankful, I didn't have to bounce around in the foster care system. My experience was not like that at all. Um, My mom was able to retain custody of me. And so I didn't have the experience that a lot of kids do, but, but on that day, something in me shifted. I wouldn't say like at seven years old, it was like, oh, you're going to be a foster parent now. No, but the seeds were planted. And so as I grew older, I was well aware that there are kids in need of a temporary, safe, loving home and stable environment because for whatever reason, they don't have that. And I knew that because I experienced it for myself. So by the time I was in college, I, yeah, I don't, again, I don't know exactly how it happened, but like, I was, I was sure that the way to be a mother, actually, I I didn't even think we would have biological kids. It just wasn't really my desire or my plan at the time. I was like, I'm going to be foster parent. So that's the long story short of how we are here today. I love it. Okay. So now it's one thing for you to have like made that decision or come to that conclusion, but what about your husband, Eric, you share a lot online about 
your marriage and the two of you, you know, as parents and just husband and wife, how did you like, was he on board with that from the get-go or what do those conversations look like? That's a great question because E and I come from very different backgrounds. So I always tell people like, there's no such thing as a perfect family or perfect childhood, but like his is as close to perfect as it gets, you know, just like no major trauma, like gets along with all the siblings. His parents are still happily married, you know, just it's, it's beautiful. It's amazing. I'll just say that that actually ended up being such a gift that we're so opposite because it makes us a better team in the way we see the world and the way we approach things. But basically for me, it was a non-negotiable in dating. Like I was very quick to tell any guy I was talking to or dating seriously that like, Hey, if this is going to progress, just so you know, I have no plans of having biological kids, but I know I'm going to be a foster parent. So if you're cool with that, great, <laughs> let's carry on. And if you're not like, see you later, have a good life with E and for t- in specific. I remember when I told him that he really like leaned in, like, I think he physically even like leaned in at this coffee shop we were sitting at. And he was like, wait, like, tell me more, which is when he obviously heard more of my story. And he, I remember like his eyes kind of getting big and he was just pretty much in shock that there was a need for this. And again, in, in his lovely naive way, he's like, oh my gosh, well, we, we should definitely like consider that. But I love that he didn't make any grand promises. It wasn't like, yes, let's get married. And tomorrow let's take in children. He, he began to then educate himself. And I think he sort of fed off of my passion And as I felt, you know, safe in my dating relationship with him to be open, I think I probably helped educate him in some ways and my passion sort of rubbed off. And yeah, I mean, at this point, you know, here we are many years later, but he's equally as uh, invested in this lifestyle of saying yes to children and partnering with families. Mm, I love that so much. So love that you're both fully on board. And then you've got little Shia, right? Yes. Yeah. He's going to be two. You said, yes, he's going to be two in a week. And you said you guys, have you fostered much with him in the home or how much, how has that worked for you? As you said, no, we weren't sure biological kids. And all of a sudden, oh yes, (laughs) biological son. Yeah. So, so we started fostering 2017. We had 16 different kids come through our care. It was actually during our last placement in Chicago that we got pregnant with Shia and, um, that's a whole other podcast episode of the journey <laughs> to deciding we would actually have a biological kid. And so I remember I was super pregnant. Our boys that we had had for almost two years left for their forever family, the family that was adopting them, which we had a long transition plan that that occurred, which it was a beautifully smooth, slow transition, like the best possible transition I could have asked for. Um, so by the time the boys left and were officially now in the care of their forever family. 48 hours later, Shia made his early appearance. And so here we thought we were going to have almost a month of being empty nesters and Shia came super early. So 48 hours later, we had him. So since we've had Shia, we then moved to LA, like when Shia was what three or four months old and the process to get relicensed took a lot longer here. So we thought we'd be fostering by the time Shia's, I don't know, year, year and a half. No. We didn't get licensed and we weren't able to say yes to a placement until Shia was, oh gosh, it was just in the last like couple of months. We've been licensed for, for several months now, but we only said yes more recently. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, it came down to a, the licensing process taking so long, but also our biological son wasn't sleeping. <laughs> um, and I know that any parent foster or not can <laughs> probably relate to some sleep struggle. And we just knew like parenting in general is so hard. But foster parenting 
is a whole other, like we're talking level up. Right. And I knew that if I was not in a good place, I have no business bringing somebody's child into my care and into my home. And so we really, we really waited, not because we didn't want to say yes to any placement. I mean, we were getting calls like all the time, but we needed to say yes to a placement that when we felt ready, not that you're ever ready, but there are certain times in your life where circumstances make more sense. So once we had found some, some things that helped shy asleep, that was a big deal to us. And then also we were the type of couple that had said yes to any and every call that we got back in Chicago, which was a huge gift. We didn't have a pet and we didn't have a bio bio kid. So it was very easy to say yes to really anybody, but now there was other things to consider and a little human to consider. And so that changed what we said yes to and and mm-hmm. what we said no to. So we've now said no a lot more than we've said yes. And I, I say that just to normalize it. I think I used to be the person that was like, we've said yes to every placement. And I didn't really think anything about it, but now I'm like, man, I, I probably caused unknowingly some shame on people who, for whatever reason, as a couple or as an individual who fosters said, no, like, I just, I like to normalize now that we say no more than we say yes. And Mm -hmm. that I don't feel bad about that because I think it's preventing a disruption. I think it's preventing more trauma. So we're, we're trying to be really smart and proactive on the front end to prevent that on the back end. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. I want to like turn that all the way up so people can hear it. Like, it's like, it's one of the things I get asked about a lot. It's like, I feel so bad saying no. I'm like, yes, but it's way worse to say yes. And then have to disrupt later. Like it's worse for everybody. So those boundaries are so important. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because I want to ask you about that. You have written a book, Soul Care to Save Your Life. And I love, like, I literally love everything that you post like on Instagram and your book is so amazing. What was like, what is, first of all, what is soul care? Like, how is it different from self-care? That's like a word that we toss around a lot. And what is that all about? Yeah, I thank you so much for the kind words. You know, soul care to save your life, while it's not a book that's about fostering, fostering definitely comes up in it. But soul care, to answer your question, the way that I see that being different than self-care is soul care is the inner, it's your soul is the inner workings of you, the parts of you that no one can see. So things like your motivation. You know, people can say, oh, I bet they're posting that for attention. Well, you don't know because you don't know someone's motivation. That's one example I can give. So soul care is caring for the unseen parts of yourself. It's doing the work to really care for your soul. Um, I say this in the book, but it's been true of my story that nothing matters more than the condition of our soul. And whether it's in fostering or in other areas of our life, I always say like, who am I to lead anyone else or to care for anyone else? Unless I'm leading and caring for myself first. Mm -hmm. Um, it's really important. So that's where soul care to save your life comes from. That's amazing. And I think, I mean, as a therapist too, like I get pushback from people, especially in the, in our community of faith that we share as Christians, like that it's like, well, that feels selfish to me. That feels like, you know, God says we should be servants. Like God says we should pour out. So like, how do you respond? I have my ways, but I want to hear what you would say to that. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's actually the most opposite thing of selfish because when we care for ourselves and when we do our inner work, it has a ripple effect there. I wrote about this in the book, but like whatever's inside of you is going to come out. Mm -hmm. So if what's inside of me is bitter, it's resentful. Like I might be showing up and serving and doing these good things and living this quote unquote good life that everyone's like applauding. But if I'm 
hating it or bitter and I don't ever like have time for myself and I'm depleted, that's going to come out at some point. Someone's going to bump into me and that is going to be the thing that flows out of my cup. And it doesn't have to be that way. You know, a small example is there was a point in my life where we were fostering, we were living in Chicago. I was serving at my church. Um, I was no longer on staff there. I, I was prior, but this was a time where I was not on staff there. I was doing my own thing. I was an entrepreneur the way I am now. And I was serving. And I think I was just trying to be everything for everyone. And it's just wildly hilarious because I don't know where we got the idea that that's what a good Christian or a good person does. In fact, once I began to really on my own read through the gospels, the first few books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I was studying the life of Jesus and I realized Jesus had this limitless potential. He had all the potential in the world, right? He's God in in the flesh and yet he didn't live up to it. Now, people listening to this might be like, wait, yes, he did. Like he did miracles or these things, whatever. But like, what I'm trying to say is he didn't need to take naps. And yet we read that he pulled away from groups. He withdrew to go take a nap. Mm -hmm. Jesus didn't need to do a lot of the things that uh, he did, but he, he chose to. And and I think Jesus just modeled really beautifully what soul care, self-care, however you want to put it, what it can look like. And I know for me that the only way to sustain my life, particularly as a foster parent, the only way to sustain my life is to be caring for myself. I am so quick to get jaded, burnt out, bitter. I mean, loving people well and loving them abundantly and graciously is, it is like a quick way to burn out if you don't have some boundaries and if you don't know how to care for yourself in the process. Like, I can't tell you, I mean, this is why statistically we see so many first time foster parents after that first placement, whether it's two weeks or whether it's a year, they never accept another placement. Like this is common. And I think it's because we're not doing it sustainably. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and I, I would love to talk about too, sometimes I hear from people from foster moms who are just getting started, like that they feel this like guilt always comes in around, you know, how their foster care experience is or what I should be doing or what more I can or could be doing. And it feels like there's just a lot of guilt and shame in this foster mama narrative. So what would you say to someone who's struggling with that, who's struggling with the shoulds and the coulds and the guilt and shame? Yeah. You know, I would bring it back to quieting and asking yourself, have I exhausted every effort to, to do my best today or to love this child the way that they need loved? Or, you know, have I shown up? Have I, have I done what I know to do? I I also believe we're, we're, we're doing some of this shame beating up on ourselves because the, the culture, especially on social media is like, if you make a mistake, it's like you get beat up or canceled over it or, I mean, man, it's like, I, I miss the days where we were like, you know what? Let's give them a little credit. They tried, they screwed up, but let's be gentle. Let's say, okay, maybe we don't say that online. Or, I mean, I, I guess I'm speaking from my own personal experience. I have made so many mistakes. I talk about a lot of those mistakes in soul care to save your life. So I feel like as a professional mistake maker, my advice would be give yourself some grace, mm-hmm. dial it back to just quiet yourself and ask yourself. Cause only, you know, what your motivations are. If your motivations are pure and you're doing the best you can, that is beautiful. And that is more than enough. I would also just encourage anyone, particularly foster parents, 
Like we are not going to be able to save anyone. We that's not yeah. our job. Yeah. And I have to remind myself. I mean, I was just we we have a team, so I won't go into the story, but I have to remind myself all the time. I can't make decisions on their behalf. I can't control them. I can't make them do what I know is best for them. Mm-hmm. There is just a surrender to being a foster parent. And the outside world, meaning anyone who doesn't foster, is going to have opinions. They're probably going to misperceive or misunderstand things. And at some point for me, I stopped wasting my energy trying to like explain and educate and get them to understand. And I was just like, whatever. Like I just stopped caring. And I started being like, let them think what they want to think. You know, one example I'll give to that is we have had teens who've left our home and we repeatedly welcome them back in. The door is open. You're welcome here. And then some of our families like, but why would you do that? Why would you keep letting them back in? And it's like, well, to understand trauma is to sometimes make some really weird choices that don't make logical sense. But this is, this is what we believe. This is, you know, it's, if you think you're going to heal trauma by making logical decisions and doing everything the same way you would for your bio kid, well, you're probably not going to be super successful. Yeah, exactly. That is so very true. I love your whole kind of take on, and this isn't to do with foster care either, but I just think it's so great about you in particular as you show up online and you show up very vulnerably. And I've struggled in the past too, you know, with some things that have been hard about when you show up vulnerably, you're vulnerable. People can come and and kind of attack in those weak, in those weak spots that they perceive that you are sharing out of like overflow and, and desire to help and serve. So I'm wondering when you say like, how do you not just like, just not care anymore? Like I've had to come up with my own strategies too for that, but I'm curious what you would say to people who maybe are foster moms who are like, this person who's not a foster parent is saying this about me or feels this way about me or the, or the social worker feels this way about me. Kind of, how do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah. A couple things. So I I do think there's wisdom in withholding. So sometimes the best thing you can do is stop sharing with that person or stop allowing that person to follow you or stop posting. Some, sometimes it's within our control that we can, we can withhold. Okay. It depends on the situation, but that's one element to consider. The other thing is we are adults who are capable of being uncomfortable. So have a conversation. It's not going to be fun. It might make you uncomfortable. It's certainly going to make them uncomfortable, but that's okay. It's not my problem if you're uncomfortable. I'm not, I don't exist on this earth to make you feel comfortable. I cannot tell you how freeing that has been for Mm. me to undo that lie, that narrative that somewhere along the the way of my life, I grew to believe that my job is to make everybody around me comfortable. Mm -hmm. Not my job. So, I mean, if you're into the Enneagram, I'm an eight. That might be obvious. I can handle conflict. I know that's not everyone's cup of tea, but the, my, my thing is, especially if you can, if you can step into the arena and you can duke it out with someone, you can have a, and when I say duke it out, I still mean like a gracious, respectful conversation between two adults and come out on the other side saying, I still don't see this the same way as you, but I'm going to respect you. Or, okay, now that you've explained this, that, that really helps me understand where, where you're coming from. But at the end of it, you can have some resolution. I I know for me, that always makes me feel better Mm -hmm. than to live in the state of limbo of, I I know someone's mad at me. They've either let me know, or I can sense it 
but we're not mm-hmm. doing anything about it. I feel like that's worse. So it's almost like do something about it because it can't really get worse than it is <laughs> exactly. when it's in that state of unknown. Does that even make sense? Yes, 100%. And I'm just laughing too, because so I'm an Enneagram too, which is like the, oh, I do want to make everybody happy and comfortable. I'm the peacemaker, like whatever, or the helper. Um, And so I had to learn like the hard way, you know, like, okay, if you're going to be vulnerable, if you're going to share vulnerably, you also need to have a thicker skin. You also need to be like willing to enter into these conversations and not just shut shut down, you know? Totally. There was a time on the internet where I posted that I used to believe it were selfish to have biological children. And I now believe it's selfish to want someone else's. Mm, And the internet either loved it or they hated it. And of course I had some people saying, well, that was your intention. This is clickbait. And it's like, actually it wasn't, I can see that. I can see how you came to that conclusion, but, um, it wasn't my intention. And what I meant by that was I was telling a, a bit of my story, my evolution of how in the initial days of fostering, I really did believe like, gosh, there's so many kids in need. It would be selfish of me to have a baby. When there are so many kids in need, but how things evolved is that as I fostered and as I loved kids and some of them went home and some of them found forever homes, but my own desire to have a child who never left grew, I realized, Ooh, I need to honor my own desires while also being true and living with integrity and really partnering with these families to the, to, um, push the goal of reunification whenever it's safe and possible. Not that it always is. And so anyways, that's where that post came from. But yes, it's like people came at me either loving it or hating it and misunderstanding it. And the thing though, that keeps me doing it, even though I know sometimes I'm controversial and sometimes people aren't going to like what I have to say or are going to disagree with me, which is usually because they don't understand me, is that there are so many other people, sometimes publicly, but often privately who say, thank you. Mm -hmm. You made me feel less alone in my feelings, or that's how I feel about it too, but I didn't want to say it out loud or whatever the case is, my my goal is always when I'm sharing vulnerably is not for attention. It's not for likes. It is to connect and to make somebody else feel less alone and to give other people permission to share their truth and to open up vulnerably as well. I love that. Yeah. That's so huge. And I think, I mean, I, to me, I sense that in everything that you post, I remember you a long time ago posted something. I think this was my like, aha moment of like, I don't know how long I had been following you, but I was like, oh yeah, yeah, this is good stuff. She just, I just, you had a lot of wisdom, but you said, I'm going to be much too conservative for the liberals here and much too liberal for the conservatives here. And I was like, whoop, I found my person. I'm like, I found my person to follow on the internet. Cause I'm like, that is exactly how I would describe myself. And that was such beautiful wording to put it there. And I just love that. Like, even with your podcast title, like a longer table podcast, you're like, can we start building a longer table? Can we invite people into these conversations? Can we make room as we often say in foster care for the both? And can we have, can we be uncomfortable? Can we sit in this discomfort as human beings and, and very complex individuals and be like, wow, like I see you having a different life experience. So therefore I'm holding space for that. And and in addition, I'm having my own different experience over here. And I think that you just really embody that and what you put out online and in your books and things like that. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's really important to me. I think I used to see life as black and white and these people as so different than me. And if, if anything, foster care has taught me that I live in the gray, that so much of this world is gray, not black and white. And that maybe we're not so different, you know, like all these people that we think we're so different from them. It's like, 
maybe we're not so different after all. That's so true. Well, you have had a crazy big year. Like you put out a book and you are, you do so many things. I'm just curious, what is next for you? What is on your agenda for 2023? Ooh, I love this question. So I actually made my first full-time hire, which is really exciting. So I've had someone working for me part-time, just very like minimal, just, you know, five, 10 hours a week Mm -hmm. throughout the last three years, just helping with things. And, um, I brought her on full-time this year, which was just felt like, Oh, Oh, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm really taking my business seriously. And so there's a lot, um, in the works, there's another book in the works, there's a new online course in the works. And then one of my goals that I don't know if it'll come to fruition in 2023, but we, we want to build towards is the thing that I am most passionate about personally is I want to create and I don't know if this is part of the business or if it's a separate nonprofit, all of those details are TBD, <laughs> but that specifically partners with the parents whose children are in care. So I want to work with the bio parents of kids in care. And to that, I've had people be like, well, go back to school. You have an education degree. Just get your degree in social work. And I'm like, I think I need to surround myself and bring social workers into this, of course, but I, I think that's not my particular role. So there's a, there's a greater vision for it. So I, I guess you could say, I want to take my podcast, a longer table, And I want to make a longer table in real life. I'm figuring out what that looks like, specifically with the parents of kids in care. That's okay. Really just like, didn't know you were going to say that. And so, so excited (laughs) about it as a social worker. I'm like, my literal, like what was on my heart the whole time in, as a foster parent was like, I don't know what's going to happen for the kids in my care, but, and they ended up, we ended up adopting them out of foster care. But I just, my heart has always been like, so just complex towards, I would say that for lack of a better word, towards bio mama in particular. Thankfully, we're in a really good place right now. And, but my heart is just like knowing her story. I don't understand. I don't, there's really not any other way that this could have gone for the kids knowing her growing up story. So I'm like, okay, here's the thing. God, I don't know what it's going to look like, but next on my like list is like, how do we love these mamas? So that they do not feel alone. Cause like some of it, I'm like, how does this not feel so overwhelmingly isolating? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. So I'm just well, so happy that your heart is that too. Yeah. I mean, one thing I'll say is that as a foster parent, I am like annoyed and bombarded by the amount of people that are quote on my team. And I'm just calling to check in and I'm your parent support person. And blah, blah, blah. It's like, there's so much, and it's actually so much that it, it annoys me. I know it's a good thing. So I'm not trying to complain, but, but there's a reason I'm sharing this. I've talked to so many of our kids' parents and like, Hey, did so-and-so get in touch with you? Or who's, you know, is the caseworker? And and I feel bad because it's not the caseworker's fault. Like a lot of times these social workers and these case managers, like they're doing everything they can, but their plate is full. Their first priority is the kid. Usually their second priority is making sure the placement is stable. So AKA checking on the foster parents. And then it's like the back burner. The last thought is the bio parent or the person who has lost custody of their children that's trying to regain. And so I just, of course, I want to dismantle and rebuild the whole system, but I am not the hero of the world. That's not going to happen. Um, I probably need to go to law school for that. But I do think that there could be a lot more done from the very beginning. Like usually when, when a, even before a removal happens mm-hmm. to partner with vulnerable families, because most of these families, most of them. It's not like one thing happened, the kids are removed. There's usually some eyes on what's this family or what's happening. 
um, or even intact services that are in place to try to keep them together before removal happens. And I'm just going, why, why isn't this working? Some, mm-hmm. Something's not working. So I'm sure I have a lot to learn and I am open to that journey. I just, it's the thing that when, you know, if somebody asks you like, what keeps you up at night, yeah. that's what keeps me up at night. I love that. Oof. Well, thank you for everything that you're doing and everything that you shared with us. I appreciate it so much. And I want to make sure people who, if they're not following you yet, where can they find you online and follow along with your journey? Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I am on Instagram mainly at Manda Carpenter. And then my website is mandacarpenter.com. That's where it houses everything. So if you want to reach me, that's a great place um, to connect. And I would love to connect with you. Perfect. Well, thank you so much again and wishing you guys all the best. Thank you.